We are living in a time when tensions and anxiety are high. With the challenges associated with COVID, race, and economic insecurity, it's been too easy for people to devolve into their baser instincts of anger, prejudice, and indifference. Despite the abundance of negativity, I find encouragement by seeing expressions of love, compassion, and respect. As much as we can focus on our differences, it's our desire to love and to be loved that reveals our commonality. This has been the focus of photographer Be Proud, who after years as a successful commercial photographer began a personal project that focused on long-term relationships between gay and lesbian couples titled First Comes Love. She has followed up that project with Transcending Love, which focuses on members of the transgender community. These projects were born from a desire to use her talents and experience to make a difference. It demonstrates the power available to all of us who wield a camera. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. All right, well, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I got to start off with your name. It's just awesome. Right? I got so lucky. I, people ask me all the time, like, or they say, oh, that's so clever. And I'm like, well, no, not really. <laughs> it's the name I was born with. But, you know, when you're a lesbian photographer, I mean, you can't do anything but go by Be Proud. And the challenge is that you have to live up to it. Yeah. So um, when you started your business well over 20 years ago, did you immediately know that that's how you were going to be, you wanted to be known? Oh, yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah, that was an easy one. <laughs> the weird thing is, too, that there's so many people in my family whose names begin with a B. Mm-hmm. Between my family and cousins, and th- but nobody ever went down that road. So I guess they saved it for me. Oh, Okay. So what was the catalyst for you? Because a lot of people pick up photography and they enjoy it and they take great pleasure in it. Um, but not everyone makes the leap to actually trying to do it as a, a way of making a living. Uh, what was what was it about it that made you feel like, you know, this is what I want to do, not only for my own for my own creativity, but to earn a living? Yeah, the earning, earning a living part is the hard part. <laughs> but I knew I wanted to be a photographer, but not not from really at an early age. I had taken a photography class in high school. It was actually the very first photography class that they offered. So we just had a little closet with an enlarger in it. So I loved it. And then I went off to college and I thought I was, you know, getting into law. And then after spending a semester in the law library... I said, no, I need to do something with my hands. And I had always drawn and was very artistic, but I had just never thought of that as my avocation. So anyway, I knew I was, I really loved photography and I really loved the, not only the artistic part of it, but the the technical part of it too. So the geek part of me really liked the equipment and the chemistry and all that stuff. So, so I decided that that was, that needed to be my major and I would see where that took me. The making a living part was the tough part because I really wasn't trained as a commercial photographer. So I had to learn all that stuff myself. Yeah. And make a lot of mistakes along the way, I'm sure. Yeah. I made some mistakes at the expense of the United States government. (laughs) (laughs) I, I moved to Europe 
in the 80s and the, during the Reagan years and got a job with the United States military as a photographer. So, oh, really? I okay. Just, yeah. I was there for seven years. Wow. That's, that's a good way of being able to cut your teeth on it. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. I, I did every, every kind of photography that they needed from um, passport pictures of babies to portraits of four-star generals to legal things. I flew in helicopters to take pictures of landscapes. And I was actually at the, at the Air Force Base where, if you remember the Iranian hostages, that's where they would bring mm-hmm. all of the hostages. So I actually had access that was even more personal than all of the news agencies that were there. Oh, it was crazy. Okay. I, I Tell me if I'm wrong, but I would suspect that that diversity of experience probably made it a little easier to hang your head as a commercial photographer and not have to sort of just create a real narrow niche for yourself because you had so much experience. Yeah, it did. I, I mean, just coming... I kind of came back to be uh, with my family as my parents got older. I thought I needed to be here. Um, but when I told people that I had just come back from Europe, that sort of perked up their ears and mm-hmm. made them pay a little bit more attention to what I was about. You know, a female photographer and, you know, there were a lot of men with sexy Latin names and they were getting all the work. So they're like, oh, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> so what, did you feel like there was a certain point where, that was sort of a breakthrough moment or a series of, of, of events that you felt like, okay, I can actually do this. This is, this is doable. I just kept at it. I mean, I would get, I got magazine jobs at first and then, you know, things came along and, you know, the nice thing is if you do a good job, then they want you to come back and they can trust you and you get hired again. And so I had some art directors that trusted me and mm-hmm. I was pretty much a generalist. So I did a lot of work for all kinds of, organizations, banks, corporations. I did a lot of food photography for a while. So I've done a, a lot of things. So what was the what was the impetus for the First Comes Love Project? Well, that was a series of events that, that brought that along. So I had been taking pictures very different from that for a while. I had been doing some uh, very up-close botanical studies so very kind of Georgia O'Keeffe-esque you would say Mm -hmm. and I had been exhibiting that kind of work and really loved doing that and it was sort of that project was kind of coming to a close or I had felt like okay what's coming next and I wasn't sure and then my then partner now wife and I 2008 we celebrated our 20th year together This is before the marriage equality laws. So we had no protections, basically. And on that day, we became the longest relationship in our families. So everyone else was on their second, third, and fourth tries, with the exception of a few relationships that ended at till death do us part. So they they were not no longer in the running. But of the existing relationships, we were the longest relationship. Not only that, but we were the basically the go-to couple. I kept people came to us for everything. We were the powers of attorney, the executors of wills, the mm-hmm. uh, elder care providers, the pet sitters, the godparents, all the nieces and nephews, and the executors of the ex's wills even. So we were the stable couple, but we just didn't have all of the rights and recognition that everyone else had. So we had, we were accepted by our family, but we just didn't have the same kind of validation as the heterosexual relationships. 
So that was beginning to wear on me that, you know, we just didn't count as much. And then the next month, Barack Obama was elected president. And I thought, okay, well, this is a good thing for the country. But at the same time, Proposition 8 passed in California and a few other measures in Arkansas, Arizona, and Florida, I think it was. And that just, it kind of was the tip of the iceberg for me. It just infuriated me that, you know, I had I had seen too much of people using religion and all sorts of other excuses about why people can't be together if they're of the same sex. And it just, I just lost it, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, right after that, we also had an economic crash. So I lost a lot of work for the coming year. And I decided, well, okay, what are you going to do next? Because you still have to work. You know, maybe I can do something that will make a difference. I tell my students to, you know, use their their art is their voice. And so I thought, okay, well, walk the walk. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try to make a difference and see what I can do as one person with the skills that I have. How can I try to change people's minds? You know, I figured everything that people see in the media are gay pride parades or protests, sort of the extremities of our community. So I thought, well, you know, I want to try to show the the other side, the day-to-day side, that what people's lives are really like. So I decided that I would do, um, I don't want to say intimate portraits, but in these environmental portraits that would show the emotion of the couple and, and the soul of the couple in their own environment. And I decided to strip away all of the rainbow imagery by doing them in black and white okay. and ask people to really look and see who these couples were and are. And in the meantime, I also decided, well, why don't you learn something new in the process? So I decided to learn video so that I could do video interviews. And I would then have not only video footage, but I would be able to have uh, a recording that I could then write a story that would accompany each portrait. So that would add another level of understanding for the viewer to see not only just, oh, isn't this a loving couple, but here are all the things that they've gone through in their 50 years together and see if I can't, you know, touch some heartstrings. How did you find the the first couple that you photographed? That was an easy one because, again, I had been we'd been together for twenty years, so I knew other people that had been together a long time. And uh, my best friend, I had I had photographed uh, them at their fifteenth year together, and I went back to that portrait and just loved it so much. And I thought, well, this is the kind of portrait I really would like to take. So they were the first couple. And at that point, they had been together for 30 years. So that's a good run. Yeah. I'm catching up on that. I've been together <laughs> with my wife for about 26, 26 going on 27. Well, I think we're approaching 32 in October. So, oh, congratulations. Yeah. So that was the first portrait. That was, you know, I'm going to see how this goes with them and see how this video taping goes with somebody that I know and I'm close to. And they'll, they'll forgive me if I'm stumbling a little bit with the technology. And then I went from there. I just reached out to other people I knew and said, this is what I'm doing. And are you interested or can you put this out to your network and, you know, see who might be interested? And then I just started making portraits. Did the concept change at all as the more and more you started photographing and interviewing people? The only thing that changed was when I first started out, I wanted it to be couples that had been together for 20 years or more. Mm -hmm. But I found that two things. Number one, that was going to, that would make the the demographic older and possibly not appeal to a younger audience. 
Uh, and there were a lot of people that had been together for in the teens years, 14, 17, mm-hmm. 15, who wanted to participate. So I decided to, to drop that, that barrier to the 10 year mark. So couples had to be, be together for 10 years. And that went pretty well because then I have quite a range of the, the shortest couple is 11 years and the longest one is, well, at the time was 59 years. So it, I was able to show, okay, there's this longevity, but also give hope to a younger demographic that, oh yeah, this could be you. So, In terms of well, where did you go to make these photographs? Did you travel extensively? Was it limited geographically to a certain area because of just practicality? Well, I started in this Mideast, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, and then I just expanded from there. Um, I went up to, as far as Massachusetts, New Hampshire, I went down to Florida, and then uh, California a few times, Chicago, and uh, I have another couple from Texas. So I didn't, I wasn't covering as much of the country as I wanted to, but I wasn't really focusing on the geographic diversity that much more so the the longevity, the number of years, and I spent most of 2013 really trying to get as much ethnic diversity as I could. So there, there got to be a point where I would have a gay male couple in their 40s, and they would bring on like 20 more gay men in their 40s, so mm-hmm. all of them white. And I said, you know, okay, great, you're on my list, but... We'll have to see how this goes. And so I really tried to get as much other diversity as I possibly could to, to make it more valid. I, I love the idea of, of these conversations that you had with them, that you recorded with them to sort of mm-hmm. flush out their, their stories rather than being these, you know, these static uh, images. But I'm curious to hear how your understanding of relationships, just period, not only theirs, but your own, what discoveries did you make? as a result of having these conversations of people who had had these relationships over a span of so many years? So first of all, I, I started out with, I'm going to do the video interview first because then people will relax. They'll talk mm-hmm. for a while and it'll make the portrait easier. So I was wrong <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> people talk so long about themselves that there was little time left for the portrait. The portrait got rushed. Ah, okay. So I had to switch my, my, uh, my game plan and start off with the portrait and then go with the interview. But I think the coolest thing, I would say 99.9% of the couples in talking about how much they loved each other cried. Mm-hmm. They got so emotional and so touched, and I did. T- I'm getting goosebumps just t- telling you about it. Yeah, you think that part of that emotionality came from the fact that they were really given the opportunity to really talk about their relationship in such an open and sincere way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's giving mm-hmm. voice to to a community that's been, you know, not really celebrated. It's been a battle. Everything has been a fight, a protest, a, mm-hmm. a, a fight for, our, for rights. And so, you know, this is a way to talk about not all of the rights and wrongs, but this is how we live. This is who we are. 
And to hear the stories about, you know, from some of the older couples, what it was like to be in the bars in the 60s in New York when they would, they would flash the lights. And that meant that you had to switch partners and go to a partner of the opposite sex because the police were coming in. Uh, and yeah. another woman who had one of the very first gay radio stations in the country and how people would, would listen to it in their cars. They would go outside, they'd be home, but they'd go outside and listen to, the, listen to it in their, oh. in their car because they didn't want anybody to know they were listening to this radio station. So, I mean, there are some really eye-opening stories for me. There's, was, yeah, there's one, uh, one of the videos, they had this couple um, that were from Canada and they had gotten married in Canada and they talked yeah. about going back and forth between there and the United States and going from the United States into Canada, they could go to get to the border or to, uh, you know, when they're dealing with that as a couple, but when they were coming into the States, they had to come in like separately. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, this is not that long ago. And it just the idea of having to adjust your behavior in that way. And it's just because of who you choose to be with. Right. It's just, you know, it's, and, you know, it's heartbreaking. Back to the, you know, our families, like, mm-hmm. and, our, and our straight friends, like nobody ever realized what it takes for, at that time, a gay couple to be together. So um, you had to have, spend a lot of money on all kinds of legal protections to make sure that, you know, you both own the house and you both had access to each other's medical records and could make medical mm-hmm. decisions and all that stuff that they just get automatically and assume, Oh, you're together. Well, you get to do this. Well, and actually, no, you don't. So, yeah. and sometimes even when you do have the papers, you get kicked out of the hospital or not allowed in the room. And, you know, well, one of the things when you're creating a body of work, especially over time, you know, there's, there's a point where you're just accumulating the work. And then at some point you have to sort of sit down and try to make sense of what you're actually doing. And about mm-hmm. whether it's working, whether or not there are holes in it. Talk to me about that that process and how the, the process of culling, evaluating the images helped to sort of shape it into more than me than you might have thought initially. I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to educate. I wasn't necessarily making a body of work for myself. I was making a body of work for my community and and to try to make a difference. So I knew... I had a goal in mind and mm-hmm. for starters that was exhibitions and and to to get the work out into the public sphere where people could see it and ultimately I wanted it to be a book as well uh, because I thought that having a book would make it a lot more accessible to other people who might not you know they're in Arkansas and there's not going to be an exhibition in Arkansas so how do I how do I see these these, right. these portraits, how do I read these stories? So I knew I wanted to do that. And so th- the timing of it was was pretty deliberate as well. So I started in 2009. And as I approached 2013, I started to see what a pretty remarkable collection I had. Besides the everyday people like myself and my friends, I had a lot of the movers and shakers, if you will, in the community and in the fight for marriage equality. I had Bishop Jean Robinson. I had Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen. I had both of the Proposition 8 couples. 
I had the first couple that was married in Washington, D.C., the first couple that was married in the state of Delaware, and several more. And so I thought to say, oh, wow, this, this is really quite something. And at this time in our history, the one portrait that would make this whole would be Edie Windsor. And it took me the better part of a year to get her to agree to do it. And once I had her, I knew that I had a super collection of uh, portraits and stories at this time in history, right between the marriage equality decisions of 2013 and 2015. So then that was for me the time that I needed to make a book. And for people who don't know, tell us who Edie is. Edie Windsor is the, well, she she's no longer with us, sadly, but the octogenarian that really brought the marriage equality case to the courts when, when nobody was ready to do it, when freedom to marry wasn't ready, when the human rights campaign wasn't yet ready. She said, I, I'm ready. Her, her partner of 40 years died and the government said, you owe us this enormous amount of money in taxes because you're not related. And she, she fought, she fought back and she won. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a spitfire. It, it, you know, God bless her. She, she did it. You know, that for me is now I have a collection that nobody else has, really. I mean, there's, there are a lot of books out there uh, about the fight for marriage equality, but it's mostly about who fought the cases and how the cases were won and why the cases were mm-hmm. won and that process. But, but the collection I have, the exhibition, the book is about who, it was, who they were won for and why. Yeah. I recently read that there were well over a million podcasts listed on the Apple Podcast app. That's amazing because I remember when there were only a few thousand. Though it's easy to get lost among so many shows, I'm so glad that we've been able to find an audience that loves and appreciates what we do. We enjoy tens of thousands of downloads each month from people all over the world, which we appreciate. But as a listener-supported show, we are especially thankful for those of you who choose to support our show financially through our Patreon effort. Your contributions provide the means to pay for the show and provide me the time to do it. If it weren't for you, it would be impossible to do this work, so I'm very grateful. If you have yet to come on board as a Patreon supporter, you can do so today. You can contribute as little as $5 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe. This modest amount adds up as our support grows. So if you have enjoyed the show and the work we're doing, please come on board as a Patreon supporter today. Thank you. I've had several conversations with people who start projects And just as a result of how things are manifesting in the world, all of a sudden the work becomes timely, right? But the person at the time couldn't have anticipated that. It was just like, no, I just want to make this work. And all of a sudden things start start culminating and just start moving in towards each other. And all of a sudden it's like like it was meant to happen. Did you feel that way? I do. Yeah. 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 it It was the right time in history to do that. 
it's the right time in history to do the next project as well. So, well, one of the things I, I, I learned in doing my research for you is that you initially looked at traditional publishers mm-hmm. um, to publish the book, but that didn't that didn't happen, and you went and self published. So, tell me about the the kind of feedback that you were getting from traditional publishers when you when you uh, put that put out the idea of publishing the book with them. Well. If you go to a lot of the publishers' websites, they'll tell you how to submit and what they want. And then at the end of the whole page of things, it says, and we're not accepting submissions. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of have to go through the back door. You have to either have an agent or you have to know someone who knows someone who knows someone. And I knew a few someones who were able to put the book in front of people. And I managed to get it in front of a few people myself. So, but at all of those publications, publishing houses, they, they all turned it down. I mean, they just said, you know, I wanted to make an, an art book and that's a costly endeavor and they, you know, we're not going to make any money. No, thank you. Uh, one said, well, we just did a book like this. And they didn't. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We just did a book about famous lesbians. Okay. So that's not this book. It's too, have you looked at the news? It's 2013, but they all said no. They all said no. And I did actually have a few independent publishers, independent photo book publishers who, who would agree to do it if I gave them a really, really big sum of money. Yeah. In other words, I had to pay for the book myself. So if I was going to do that, I thought, well, why don't I just do the book that I want to do and get what I want and it'll look how I want it. And, you know, I, I probably will make some mistakes, but I know some really talented people. I know a great designer and I know great digital people and I know people who can help me get this done and it will be pretty good, I think. And, you know, so I'm going to do it myself. It was scary. <laughs> it was really oh, scary. I bet. <laughs> how long was that journey? Uh, well, uh, I mean, boy, it took me six years to get the whole thing together and write mm-hmm. all of the stories. And then they had to get, you know, edited as I went along uh, by someone who was just a better writer than I am. And and then it, had, it went to the designer and we went back and forth, back and forth with what the cover should look like and what the font should be and, you know, how big the font should be. And then we had to sequence the images. So I worked with a colleague at the University of the Arts and we would put all the images up on the wall and look at, you know, how they flowed into each other and who would be next to whom and um, decided to put all of the marriage equality people, kind of the, the political couples in the middle. And then it, it went off to the publisher. Well, getting a, getting a printer was another thing because I got estimates from around the world, really um, Italy, Iceland, Germany, China, the U S and in the end, I needed to go to the the one in China because it was the most affordable. And one company came highly recommended to me and they actually did some things to prove that, that they could do the job and, and did examples like send us some files. We'll send you a proof, see what you think. So they convinced me that they could do it. So when I sent them the files, it was May right before Memorial day. And the next day, I saw a double rainbow. So I thought, okay, that's a good sign. <laughs> and it was August when I got my sample books. And 
close to the end of September when I got the shipment. That must have been a very special day when you opened up that box and you saw that and held it in your hands. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. And I wouldn't, it, you know, I have to credit my wife for helping me get that done because she made me buy those three big erasable uh, calendars and put the deadlines on the calendars where I could see them from a distance. And I was like, okay, this date, this has to happen. And this date, this has to happen. And this date, this has to happen. And so it got done. So what was the response to to the work, not only in terms of, you know, you releasing this book, but the exhibitions that you had subsequently? Oh, the exhibitions have been amazing, really. Um, Starting with the very first one, which was in Western New York State. So at a community college and the gallery director there really believed in me and loved the work. And he did an amazing job of putting this show together. It took two years, but he got some grants and things and uh, it was beautiful. And I had to do a, I had to uh, speak to the audience before the opening reception. So they, they have an auditorium and you go into the auditorium and you speak to the audience and then you go into the gallery. We did that and and I got some amazing response just from that talk from people that said, we have a daughter who's gay. We had no idea that she faced this kind of discrimination, the things that you mm. told us about and we're gonna go home and call her right away. And then a few weeks later after I got back, I got an email from a young woman who I met that night, and she was, I think, 20 or 21 years old. And she, she emailed me and said, you know, this, this exhibition, it, I felt like I had come home. Like, I had never seen anything like that before. I don't get any kind of support here in this community. You know, you've given me hope that someday I can have a relationship like this. For me, that was worth every wow. penny I wow. had spent. I had another, I mean, the, the stories are amazing that... In uh, Washington State, uh, these two men came with their, I don't know, they had like six or eight adopted children. They all came in, all dressed up, coats and ties, dresses. And the guy came over to me and just hugged me and cried and said, mm-hmm. we brought our children to see this, to tell them, you know, to, for them to see that, that they're not the only family like this. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, I can imagine that, that for many of these families, there are Within the communities in which they live, they're very isolated. They may have friends and other families that are basically their support group, but they're not necessarily close, you know, in terms of physical proximity. They're still kind of an island in there. And that is, that can be really difficult because I would imagine it's just like you can never really have a sense of how your neighbors or the people around you are going to respond. So there's, there's this kind of, tentative cautiousness that you constantly have to be perpetually sort of practicing, you know, and just that, that sort of constant tension. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't hold that anymore. <laughs> I just, <laughs> if people ask what, what I'm doing, I just take a deep breath and say, okay, here we go. So yeah, the, I mean, there's just so many success stories from the exhibitions and the response from people and and the fact that it has touched people in certain ways that I've seen it used as a a marriage proposal, uh, the book itself, mm-hmm. as a wedding gift, an anniversary gift. One couple came to me and asked me to photograph their wedding and it would be it was gonna be the two of them and 
their witnesses and that was it because their families just were not accepting. So they, you know, they said, would you, would you do it? And I said, yeah, of course. And I gave them a copy of the book and the one she said, okay, I have to go right now. I have to go give this book to my mother to read and maybe she'll get it. And when I went to photograph the wedding, there were a hundred people there. Oh my God. So, um, but, and then one of the, like that, the coolest, coolest thing, really. I mean, those, I don't know, maybe it's not the coolest. They're all great moments. But um, there was an exhibition in Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center about gay rights and the Supreme Court. And it had all kinds of, you know, stuff from some of the legends. And one of my photographs was was in it. But they, they asked me, the organizing committee said, we want to buy nine copies of your book. And I said, Okay. And they said, well, will you come to this press conference and will you sign the books? And I said, yes. So I went. I didn't know what was going on. So the mayor of Philadelphia signed the books and they had all these dignitaries to sign the books. And they were spread out around these two tables. And above each of the books was a letter to one of the Supreme Court justices inviting them to come to the exhibition and to understand what our lives are about right before the 2015 marriage equality decision, the Obergefell decision. So it was the, it was the invitation. <laughs> so it, that it, is crazy. The book is inside. It made it into the Supreme court because it wasn't a gift. It was an invitation. So they can't accept gifts. And it wasn't that it was the invite to come. Wow. That must've been an amazing feeling when you realize how it was being used in that way. It was. And then I went, to the Supreme Court the day of the oral arguments. And it was really emotional to know that my book was in there. Oh, wow. So I can't claim, uh, you know, responsibility for the, the way the decision went for, by any means, but just to be, you know, to have a part in that is, feels good. Well, let's talk about an extension of what you've already been doing, this uh, this project called Transcending Love. Tell us about that and, and what, what propelled you to do this? Well, as soon as I published First Comes Love, as soon as the book came out, everybody loved it and wanted to know when I w- would do the volume two because now they want to be a part of it. You know, I just say, well, yeah, I can't, I can't do that right now. I mean, I, first of all, when you self-publish, you're, you wear all the hats. You're the publicist. You have to contact the bookstores directly and ask them to take the book. You have to try to go to bookstores and do talks if they'll have you. And not only that, but the exhibitions and all that. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And it costs a lot of money. So it was not like I could just rush into the next thing. And the the exhibition was still traveling. So the exhibition traveled for at least two more years. Um, And I was going to those exhibitions, too. So I thought, you know, no, I can't. I can't do this. And then we had another election in 2016 and that went the wrong way and I said oh no <laughs> oh no and it was pretty clear very quickly that there was going to be a lot more to fight for in a hurry but I had already done you know I, I had already done the one project and I didn't see any point in repeating that and I knew that the trans community the gender nonconforming, the non-binary community, that's the community that needs the love and the acceptance. Those are the people that have not had nearly enough attention 
protections forever. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, I will do the same sort of thing, but I want to do it for that community only. And I decided, well, I'll continue to make it different than any of the other projects I had seen about transgender people. I would continue with my theme of couples and love and, you know, what it takes to be together. And this time it's what it takes to be together when you are in a relationship and one partner decides to transition or you have transitioned and you meet someone. And so all of those things. So not with the longevity factor this time, but just mm-hmm. this is this is people in love and they want to be able to be in love and be together and be accepted for who they are. So I made it my mission to do that. And it's going great. But one of the differences between this and the former book is that the former was in black and white and this one is in color. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought this one would be in, col- in black and white too, but... As soon as I took the first picture, it was pretty clear that it needed to be in color because the transgender community is anything but black and white. It's a full spectrum of different relationships and people. And it just, it spoke to me as needing to be in in full color. Mm. One of the things we talked about earlier was that when people saw the exhibit and they saw the, the book is that they felt like they had learned something mm-hmm. uh, as a result of it. With you focusing on the transgender community, um, and as you started interviewing these people and photographing, did you find that you yourself were learning something that you hadn't known before? Oh, yeah, definitely. I uh-huh. mean, you know, th- I'm, this book, this project isn't about the medical transitions or surgeries or body parts or any of that. This is about just people being people. I was surprised at some of the things I learned because, you know, I there had already been all of these bathroom bills in North Carolina and so forth, you know, and for me, it was just like, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, why can't people just go to the bathroom? I mean, I didn't understand why they would have laws like that. So, but I didn't really understand the full extent of that until I started really talking to people and getting to know people that you really have to figure out your life based on if you will have to go to the bathroom. You know, you want to go out to dinner with your partner and you have to decide, will I need to use the restroom? Will I be safe using the restroom? Or you're going out for the day in public and can I use a bathroom in a, in a government building? It's a thing. And, you know, there are some, it's easier for some people than others, but Everybody is at some point not, they're at the beginning of their transition. So they can be kind of in between not transitioning and transitioning. So it can be scary because then they're not perceived as one, I hate to say one gender or the other, but they're not perceived as one, as a man or male or female. And it can, it can be a problem. Yeah. And not to diminish that, but just especially the loss of life that's been happening to the trans, to many in the transgender community, especially those of color, uh, to, to feel like you have to actually fear for your life just yeah. because of how you identify. I don't know an if incredible you look at that, that section of the website at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, as I was traveling, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I thought I was 
doing really important work and really good work, but I felt like something was missing. I just didn't know what it was that, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And then I kept hearing about the deaths of, of transgender people, like, you know, every month there was another one and it, and it had been rising exponentially since 2016. I started looking up the history of violence, typically fatal violence against the trans community. And I saw that it was in so many different cities around the country. And I was traveling to so many cities around the country. I've been to 24 States now. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay homage here. I'm going to go to the spot where somebody has been murdered Yeah, as close as I can come to it. I mean, sometimes it's a lake and I don't know where on that lake it was. And sometimes it's an, an intersection and I know, it, okay, well, it's this inter- intersection, but I don't know the exact piece of pavement where a body was found, but I go there and I, you know, I, I reflect and I, and I stay there and just think about this person and I say their name and, and I ask the universe for, you know, some healing and some hope and some protection. And I make a, I make a photograph and I make it during the day, not at night when things are probably when the murders probably happen, but you know, just in the, in the bright light of day so that the pictures look rather innocuous at first. And then you realize, mm-hmm. Oh, Oh, so, you know, I feel like I'm showing a really bright side of the community and celebrating the couples in the community. But, you know, people can live um, day to day having to fear for their lives. So I need to show that too. And I think that that would bring people to, if I can get people to, to say, oh, wow, these are, these are amazing people and white, you know, I need to be more accepting. But then it's when you see the next part, it's like, and I need to do something because this is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the strengths about those images is that the locations are so banal. You know, they're so ordinary. And then to have to think about the, you know, the horrible thing that happened there makes it, I think, a little more accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you hear about it in the news, it's just, it's elsewhere. Some nebulous place to some nebulous person. But when you see, when you see the faces of these couples and then you see the location, I think it just allows at least us, you know, a, a small way of being able to connect to the humanity of the circumstances. I hope so. I haven't quite figured out how the two parts of the project will live together. I mean, it's easy on the website, but I I don't know in exhibition how that might appear or in a publication, how that might appear if it needs to be two different publications. I don't know. It's, I don't know if that will still evolve. Yeah. And that's part of the journey when you're making work. Because, like I mentioned earlier, you know, when you're in the midst of creating the work, all you have to do is just create the work. You know, you don't you don't have to necessarily start figuring out what the end result is going to be. There's enough to do already. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't know I'd be going down that road. It just happened. So you uh, you teach uh, you, and how has this experience helped inform how you teach your students how to work on their own? personal projects that you might, what kind of insight have you gained that you share with your students that you might have not had before? I share everything with my students. I teach, uh, I teach studio lighting. So in a two semester, two part class. And then I also teach a class that's um, it's called professional practices. So it's basically how to be out in the world 
and be a professional and get your work seen and do all the things that adult artists have to do. But I share everything with both of those classes and my successes and failures. And it makes it very real for them. They see my struggles. You know, when I was about to publish the book, I, I asked my class, like, I don't know what to title this because, you know, I, I've got First Comes Love, but what's the subtitle? Mm. Is it queer relationships? Is it LGBTQ relationships? Is it what? How do I title this? Because if it was five years hence, queer might be okay. But for a lot of people, queer is derogatory. It's cool with the younger generation, but it's not with the older generation. So what word do I need to use that will be fitting here? And they can see that process that I go through. And several of my, I guess they were already former students, assisted me in that project. So, which was great that we got to work together and I could see that they were learning something. But I, you know, I show them you know, okay, I'm going to develop these this promotional materials for this project now, and this is what it's going to look like, and this is why I'm going to do it this way, and now I'm going to apply for a grant, and this is how you apply for a grant, and you might not get that grant, and you might not get 10 grants, so you just have to keep at it, and it's just a sharing process, and, and I have no qualms about sharing every single part of it. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer that my listeners can discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, wow. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my heroes right now is Zanelli Moholy. So I love her. I just totally respect what she's doing and I'm completely amazed. And if I have her book, it sits next to me. It's on my bedside table because I think it's just the greatest thing. Tell us about the work. Um, well, you know, she's um, South African and um, it's just, it's really a lot about it's, it's all, they're all self portraits, really the work she's doing now, they're all self portraits, but they're of, you know, her, her vision of herself with she, she, when you first see the pictures, they look like it's a portrait of someone in just, um, I would say, some uh, African-American garb or something. But it's she's really using these, like she might be using toilet paper rolls or these, you know, paper clips. Or she makes these elaborate necklaces with them just to show that they're the most simple things that can make these portraits beautiful. Um, and she... She adjusts the color and the color, the tonality. She, she darkens the tonality of her skin, seriously. And then, so her eyes are bright white. It's amazing. You have to see oh, it. Oh, I've got I to gotta check that out. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. It was very nice. And I think our color coordination here is really good. Yeah, people can't <laughs> see that, but... <laughs> Thanks to B for joining us. Find out more about her and her work by visiting BeProudPhoto.com and FirstComesLove.org. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. 
on the YouTube channel. I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or making a one-time or reoccurring donation through PayPal. Thanks to Jeffrey Saldinger, Jason Randolph, Art Venable, David E. Vakalski, and Junie for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.